Politics Monday, setting the week's political agenda on Wellington Mornings. Welcome back at seven minutes past 11. We normally do it on a Monday morning every week, but because we had the day off, we decided we still would be very important to have our uh, political uh, pol- politics Monday on a Wednesday. Nationals Deputy Leader Nicola Willis joins us. Good morning, Nicola. Good morning. And Labour MP for the Hutt South, Ginny Anderson, joins us. Good morning, Ginny. Good morning. Let's start with saying, under a last-minute change to the government's three water reforms, 60% of our MPs would have to agree to overturn part of the bill protecting the water assets from privatisation. However, Cabinet now is discussing the change after an outcry from constitutional law experts. Ginny, why was this rushed through without any sort of public debate? Well, for a start, it it hasn't been rushed through because it's still got to go to the business committee to be discussed. It's a cross-party committee that makes the call. Uh, It was an an idea put forward by the Green Party as a way of making sure those entities would not become privatised. So I guess I'm really interested is... You know, National's been playing this one up a bit. I mean, but does Ginny, you support it. A, but Gin, does this show... Ginny, do you support it? Do you well, look, support it, it's yet to be determined by the business committee. Do you so support it? I haven't it? seen the details. I, look, I don't want them sold. I don't want them privatised. But maybe National do want to privatise them if they're so concerned about this. Nicola, how does this appear as opposition and, and really the public? How does it look? This is anti-democratic. Ginny's entirely missed the point. The point here is that Three Waters, many people feel, is being progressed without a mandate as it is. wasn't something that was actively campaigned on, and a lot of people across the country oppose it deeply. The government has been rushing it through under urgency, using that provision in Parliament, and then snuck in during that urgency session an anti-democratic uh, alteration to the law, which would have meant that it can only a part of it can only be overturned if 60% of Parliament vote for that in future. So they voted for entrenchment. Now, the constitutional experts who don't have a political dog in the race have come out screaming about this, saying it is not within the way our democracy or constitutional traditions are meant to work, that governments use their majority of the day to entrench legislation so that a future parliament can't overturn it. This is taking the government's majority too far. And I've been uh, actually pleasantly surprised by how aware New Zealanders are of this. I've had a lot of people getting in contact with me saying, these guys have completely lost the plot because they're doing this without a mandate. They're going too far. It's anti-democratic. Jenny? Well, I just want to know, if, would National privatise them then? Is that why they're so opposed to this? Do they strongly believe that once those entities are set up, that they would be, like they did with SOEs under John King, sell them off? I, the, you, this is not about that, Jenny. It uh, is about are, that. It's about no, it's privatisation. Not, it's trying to create a political game out of what are long-standing democratic principles in New Zealand, which is that the only parts of our law that we entrench are to do with electoral matters, that we don't pass legislation without mandates in the dead of the night and then seek to entrench it through these sorts of clauses. Now, National's been very clear, Jenny, and you know that we have, saying that we oppose privatisation of water assets. In fact, we go a step further. 
than Labor. We say we oppose confiscation of water assets from community control, which is what your proposal does. So this is one of those political arguments that I think people can see through. It's an attempt by Labor to distract from what is a very unpopular policy. And I, I, I don't think so, Nicola. And this time you've got court, and I'm glad you've got court, and the constitutional experts are mm, on our you side. You see, I think that National's track record, I think that National's track record actually speaks for itself. So when you sold off all of our state-owned assets without consulting or talking to the public, the state-owned people, assets. Can I interrupt? We're, we're getting nowhere here. Ginny, why are all these independent lawyers, very smart lawyers, so upset by this? Well, I think that, as I've said before, the Green Party proposed that, and that is yet to be discussed by the Business Committee when Parliament resumes next week. Why, so did, why, did, the Green Party, why did the Green Party suddenly have that say in that? Because I think they're fearful of a future national government that would sell off state assets as they've done in the past. Yeah. Let's be let's be very clear. Uh, actually, the government could overturn this without the business committee being involved at all. It isn't constitutional. A massive change like this requires closer scrutiny, considered input. Uh, we we did in government national uh, do the mixed ownership model. I haven't seen Ginny or Grant Robertson or Jacinda Ardern for that matter lining up to repurchase those assets. Okay, let's change tact. On Monday, the government announced the $4 million fund to support retailers enduring crime around the country. The money will go towards supporting local crime prevention plans run by councils for the dollar-for-dollar dollar sort of input, plus also improving accessibility to fog cannons, bollards, and CCTV cameras. Ginny, is this really what retailers actually want? I'm hearing not. Well, first of all, the most important thing, um, before I even say that, I'd also like to acknowledge the, the family of um, the, the victim's family of the Sandringham um, uh, murder, which is, it's a shocker, and, and I really feel um, for that family. No one should have to go to work and not come back home that night to their family, so I, I think that's important. Um, but the, the most important way that we can reduce crime is by having more police, and we've got more police on the beat than we've ever had before. Let's not forget, Nick, that under National, they closed 30 police stations and in 2016 had another 20 that they were getting ready to close. So that would have been, in total, 50 community policing stations shut down under National. So the best way to reduce crime, yep, fog cannons are great, yep, bollards are great, but the best way is more police on the beat, and that's what we're doing. Ginny, where I have an issue, and I did an hour on the show uh, yesterday on it, where I have a real issue is why us as taxpayers should pay for the security for these small businesses. Well, if, if it's impacting upon our community safety and the way that we feel in our communities, that we're not feeling safe, then that impacts upon everybody. I want to live in a community where I feel safe walking down to my local shop. And if that means putting some extra security measures in that dairy, I think that's good for me as well as the business owner. Nicola, if it was as simple as that, why don't we just get tougher on criminals? Wouldn't that avoid spending all this money? Exactly. Because isn't it sad that we've got to the point that the discussion is about how well we barricade our local shops so that we can feel safe? That is not the kind of community uh, that I want us to have in New Zealand. And I was at the Indian Business Awards last night 
with many members of the Indian community in Auckland uh, who are grieving Janak Patel's loss, but are also themselves frightened. They are retailers, and their message is really clear. They say, you can give us all the fog cannons you like. What we want to see is a justice system that delivers consequences and ensures people are expected to take personal responsibility and accountability for their actions, a justice system that says no to violent crime. And I think... We have to be clear here, one of the core targets that this government set was that they wanted to reduce the prison population. It's one of the few targets that they've delivered on. There are around 30% fewer prisoners, but violent crime is up 21%. We have to stop the excuses. People have to face consequences for violent crime. Ginny, we're reading about the local retailers in your area, Lower Hutt, uh, up in arms about what's going on. What are you hearing from them? Yeah, there's, there's been, um, for, for even before we were in government, there's been a long-standing concern on those front-facing businesses, whether they're bottle stores, dairies, they're open long hours, they're vulnerable. So the best we can do uh, is, is not just put in protective measures like plant cannons, which did work actually very well, um, and police know that they work, but also it's to have police. And national talk a big game when they're in opposition. They'll talk about tougher crime, they'll talk about cracking down, but when they get into power... They close police stations and they put police out of work. And so how do we respond to crime and make arrests and arrest more of those on aggravated robberies? Uh, how do we actually do that when the reduction of investment in our police services has happened? So I'm, yeah, I think talk a big game, but in terms of actual delivery in the front line, it's not there. Nicola, is this just um, a risk that you take by owning a business that sells, smokes and alcohol? Is that something that they've got to... I mean, when Michael Hill was getting into trouble and they were getting those burglaries, he spent the money himself. He didn't wait for the government to pay. Look, I think that we all want to live in a community that's safe. We shouldn't be uh, living in a community where we say, oh, look, there'll be people who get up in the morning and they rob stores and they violently attack people. Actually, one of the fundamental obligations of the government is to protect its citizens and keep them safe. And... It hasn't been the case throughout New Zealand's history that we had uh, such a tsunami of crime occurring. This is a new phenomenon. And, you know, I I think it's just a bit rich for Labour after five years to somehow blame this on national. It's happening on their watch. They are failing to respond adequately. Nicola, will you give us the promise that when, when or if you get back into power that you'll increase the numbers of police and you'll have police back, police stations back open that you closed? Of course, we will constantly be training new police, adding them to the police force. That is what you have to do in a country where the population is growing and where the need for a frontline police force is growing. Politics Wednesday, well, Politics Monday on a Wednesday. National Deputy Leader Nicola Willis and Labour MP for the Hutt South, Jenny Anderson, join us on the show. It's come to light that, a, that no cost benefit analysis has been planned as part of Waka Kotahi's speed reduction plan, which is set to slash speed limits around the country as much as 40 kilometres an hour in some areas. Ginny, why on earth has this not been done? Um, when this has not been done, or yeah. was that, what was the question? Why, has, why hasn't it been done? Why has there been no cost to benefit anal- analysis done on oh, slashing speed limits? Well, it's a, it's a 
out for consultation right now, and, and it's a really interesting one, and, and my community is directly affected, so I live right on State Highway 2. So the, the local residents group where I'm at have been lobbying for about five years to, to drop the speed limits along State Highway 2. Um, and, and the patch where I'm at, there's three sets of traffic lights and a really short spread, and there's the, the school my kids go to on, on that motorway. And the number of accidents around that area are phenomenal. We, we regularly hear brakes screeching when someone runs an orange light and it has hit a pedestrian and killed them in the last 12 months. Uh, kids are at risk. So the local communities are very supportive of having some of those speeds dropped. The people that don't support it uh, are the ones who are travelling from A to B, someone who wants to get to where they're going and quickly. So that's that's the trade-off. That's the cost-benefit. What are the safety benefits for those communities by having some lower speeds that, that benefit them versus those communities who are wanting to get to Wellington? But you haven't, Jenny, my question is that is you haven't done the cost-benefits, so why? how can you have consultation on it when you don't know what it's going to cost and what the benefits are? Well, the plans I have seen are quite detailed. So the number of accidents along the strip when they came and consulted with our community group were very detailed. Um, and that and they've gone and spoken to all those groups affected. And have, so I would have sort of tried to argue that some of that cost-benefit analysis is talking to those different groups who, who had different views and weighing up the best way forward. Nicola, does this just further build a case for the likes of freight company who, who are already uh, concerned about the, the speed reductions? Well, that's the worry. Uh, what the freight companies are saying is this will mean trucks doing fewer deliveries each day because it'll take them longer, meaning more trunks, trucks will have to be brought on board to make up the difference, meaning more cost, meaning more emissions. And you know who pays the cost of that extra freight? It's you and me. Uh, when we go and pay at the FPOS terminal. So we do need to consider the implications. And I think this is something the government needs to be thinking about a lot more across the board, which is when we do this extra regulation, when we do this extra law or policy, what cost will be added and who's going to pay? Because with prices rising as fast as they are, the government needs to be really careful about this sort of thing. And the fact that they didn't even do a cost-benefit analysis suggests to me that they just don't really have their minds in the game. And let's be clear, that they're talking about 440 different locations across the country, more than 500 kilometres of state highways. So it's not just that small strip that Ginny's referring to. Jenny, it's actually 4%. It's 4% of the total state highway that's focused. And those areas are focused around school, uh, small towns, and where you've got people who are crossing the road. So um, we know for a fact that speed is a huge factor in taking human life, and it always increases the severity. So Waka Kotahi are undertaking the consultation, um, and it's something that uh, they're going into all those communities and finding the best way to get safer speeds that don't kill people, as well as maintain the local economy. Jenny, we've been speaking about the Rimataka Hill this morning on the show uh, and the horrific numbers of people that have lost their lives on it. Um, what are your thoughts? Do you think the speed limit should slow, be slowed, lowered well, on it? Well, there's some pretty. Well, I think we've talked about this before on the show. It, it, when it's in, in, in rainy conditions or windy, it really cops the wind over there. So, if, you, if you're doing 100k up a hill or down a hill, um, and it's in, in rain or wind, you know people need to drive to the conditions, and they don't always do that. So, yeah, there's been some awful accidents um, crashes on that on that road. So, look, I'm, personally, I'm always in favour of slowing down a bit if that means a life is saved. Nicola, your thoughts on the Rimataka Hill? 
Yeah, it's a tricky piece of road. Um, I think there are very few people who belt up and down it going 100 k's the whole way. Uh, I think that would be next to impossible. I think uh, most people are sensible and are reducing their speed so they can manage those tricky corners. Uh, and I do think that there's uh, a bit here, which is let's be very clear that people need to drive safely and be responsible for that. Uh, but that doesn't always require a blanket massive reduction in the speed limit. It does feel, though, Nicola, that, that money has been spent and it feels safer than it did, say, five or ten years ago. Oh, absolutely. Just the way that the corners are cambered, the the lengths, the the bays that you can um, hop off at if you feel like you're delaying other traffic. All of that seems better on the uh, Rimataka Pass than it was a decade ago. I said on the show that I think it's one of the scariest pieces of road in New Zealand. Do you, either of you actually get concerned driving it? Um, I don't know. No, I've never, I guess I always take, we take our time when we go over to the Wairarapa, because you've got kids in the back um, and take your time. Um, only time I felt kind of scared is when you get those really high winds and I've been in my, my little barina and it feels like you can feel it moving on the road. So when, when you really you know, feel like your car is being pushed by the wind, I think that's at times where it feels scary. Yeah, it's certainly one of those ones where if I know someone's driving it at night, I say, please, drive carefully, uh, go well, because it is one of those stretches of roads that uh, you really have to be focused, concentrating uh, doubly hard. Well, we, if, and heaven forbid ever, anyone ever happens to either of you, but you've both got very bright coloured cars, so they'd be uh, easily identified <laughs> and, 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 and found, wouldn't you? The Act, and I don't mean that in jest, uh, the Act Party has launched a truancy policy for schools which would bring in daily national attendance reporting an infringement notice to regime for parents whose children are regularly off school. Nicola, why are you so afraid to punish the parents? I'm not afraid to at all. Um, You know, I think that there are three people uh, involved in a child's school attendance. Number one uh, is mum and dad, and they have a responsibility to get their kids to school. Uh, and number two is the school that needs to be following up on those kids that aren't attending and finding out what's going on. And number three uh, is the government to make sure that schools and parents have what they need to ensure that attendance is happening. But, you know, when it comes to parents, I, I have this reflection, which is we're quite happy if someone's found speeding past the school without their seatbelt on to have the police stop them and find them. Now, Why then would we not stop someone and find them if they're repeatedly refusing to send their child to school? Because that is a very significant, um, I think, missing of the responsibility we expect parents to take. And we did on the show a few months ago or a few weeks ago that if you actually have five days off a term in your between six and 16 Five days off a term, that's not that many when you really think about it. It's one whole year of education. Ginny, if we don't punish parents, then what should we do instead? Well, just in terms of what the Act is requiring, that already schools provide their attendance data to the Ministry of Education. So that's already occurring. 
uh, in terms of what's there. Um, but look, I, I, I do agree somewhat with Nicola. I think that there is a primary responsibility on whoever is the caregiver of, of a child or children to make sure they go to school each day and that they know that that's the requirement. So I think it's really important that we continue to have those strong conversations with communities, that that is a, a clear expectation that they need to do to be a good parent. But saying that, we've seen the stats really pick up in term four attendance rates have gone up to 87%. So we do, a, a lot of that um, sort of jumping around and fluctuating has been a big part of COVID. So we're hopeful that with the, the evidence of the intensive school-led programs to engage students, that we'll keep seeing results and keep seeing those attendant rates growing. Nicola, why aren't we concentrating on making schools a place where kids want to go to? Look, I think many schools are, but I do think some bad habits have crept in post-COVID. I was having a chat with a parent the other day who said to me, look, it's quite difficult for us because some days our 14-year-old doesn't want to go to school. And she seems to be under the impression that you don't really have to go if you don't want to. And we as parents want to say, no, you have to go, but it's really tricky when the school's not following up and there doesn't seem to be any enforcement of that expectation in the school culture or the community culture. So I think that we do have to have this really clear expectation that children attend school. No excuses. That's what happens. That's what we all expect. And yes, if schools are a really bad place for whatever reason, let's uncover that. Let's find out what's going on and help get that child engaged, but we've got to stop the excuses for not attending. Take a yeah, short... no, I, like, I, I tend to agree, and I, I'm taking my head off to those schools. Like ours now, we get a text notification within like five minutes. You know, they're taking the role right on the dot at, at nine, and parents are being notified on cell phones if your kid's not at school, and I think that's a really good practice. Uh, guys, I was uh, in Melbourne on the weekend for this election. I wasn't over there for the election, but I was there during the election, <laughs> and Daniel Anderson... Andrews, Daniel Andrews, has claimed a historic third term for Labour in the Victorian election. I could not believe this. I, I was really shocked because I follow it a little bit. I have a lot of fan, family and friends in Melbourne. It came despite huge blows in the polls and widespread doubts. Uh, Ginny, are we overestimating the accuracy of polls? I mean, a year ago he was dead and gone. Remember all the lockdowns? Yeah, I just, I remember him, I don't know if you saw that, when he, he made that comment about getting on the beers, do you remember that? Yeah. And, and then they made a video out of it, like there's like a song where they just repeated getting on the beers repeatedly, it was actually quite amusing. So that's my main lasting memory of him, and because it was really tightly associated with strong lockdowns, and Melbourne was one of the lockdown, most lockdown cities in the world, so they definitely copped it in terms of the unpopularity of that. Um, but I think it's really hard to take too many lessons from elections in other jurisdictions. I mean, you could say, yeah, people are, are happy that you know they, that they got looked after through COVID. But um, I think the, mo- the main takeaway is that you can't take voters for granted, um, and you can't Ginny, really. Ginny, yeah. this must excite you a little bit. Let's be really, really honest about this because they were they were dead, gone, and buried. Let's be honest, and don't tell me you don't keep an eye on what happens in Australia. I guarantee there was people from the Labour Party in Melbourne for that election watching and sniffing it out and seeing it, because I know that's how it works. 
Yeah, look, I think it was it was a real surprise. I thought some of the polling, and, and, it, and if you were reading the media in Australia the week before, you would have thought he was dead in the water or, or incredibly close. So a comfortable victory was, was a surprise. But, you know, good on him. He's worked hard and, and he's, you know, he's retained that. So I, I feel, you know, pleased for him. Pleased for him. Gosh, damn. Nicola, Nicola, this must slightly make you a little bit nervous because, you know, you're riding high, you're riding, but, but re- reality is people still vote for that leader that they know, recognise, might, might not even like, but vote for a leader. Well, I think that people uh, next year will be making a decision about what leadership they think will allow New Zealand uh, to get through very difficult economic times and manage the economy responsibly, to think what leadership will bring safety back to our communities, uh, to think what will make them and their family better off. And I think when they look at Jacinda Ardern's government, they will see leadership that hasn't delivered, that made big promises and hasn't had the follow-through. And that stuff does catch up with governments. You know, you can say the right words for so for so long, but after five years of it and very little progress across a lot of fronts, I think people will be reappraising things. But it's going to be a tough, tough election. There is no doubt we will be fighting for every vote. Let's put things on cards on the table. Daniel Anderson Andrews was absolutely despised in Melbourne, right? He was gone and dusted. But it seems to me when it comes to elections, and I I felt it, I saw it, I smelt it, it comes to that personality. Jacinda Ardern is still a superstar, you know? And when it comes to election, that's going to be a hard thing to topple. Yeah, well, I mean, I still, you know, when you're lucky enough to have the Prime Minister um, come and visit your electorate, um, you know, it's really, I always love how, how much... Um, kids enjoy seeing her and wanting to, you know, take a photo. And, you know, so I think she is. She's, she's been a strong leader through an unbelievable time in New Zealand's history. And, and I think people do recognise that still. And being overseas, people aren't talking about Richie McCorry anymore. They're talking about Jacinda Ardern. That's the only person <laughs> they, they know. You know, it's really That's weird. Right. So yeah. let's change the subject. So I read yesterday that six MPs with, within Parliament are renting their own electrical electoral offices back to Parliament with the likes of Christopher Lux and getting $45,000 for his um, office. Now, I don't have an issue with this. I do not see it anything wrong. But can you please, Nicola, tell me that they get an independent valuation for the rental so that we're not getting ripped off? Yeah, they do. Uh, and the, the fact is, for the Labour MPs who do it, for the National MPs who do it, the alternative is they could uh, rent those offices out to private tenants uh, and would get that rental income the same. Uh, no one's being ripped off here. No, I agree. Jenny, what do you think? Yeah, as long as it's a good deal for the taxpayer. So as long as the taxpayer's not paying more than what the market rate would be, then I can't see any issue with it. Does it look? Do you think it looks bad for people that are looking from the outside that don't really understand how it works? Would look? Yeah, I think it does look bad sometimes. So I think it's really important to have that transparency to make it available what the what the valuation is and what the payment is. So I think people can see through all of those things. Um, that wasn't done in the past. It was it was um, you know not made public as to which MPs uh, benefited from that. So uh, I think the fact that that's now all disclosed publicly is a good move. Can I ask you both who owns the offices that you have got in your constituency? Both mine are private landlords, yeah. Okay. 
All right. As, oh. I'm, as I'm a list MP, I yeah. don't have a constituency <laughs> but, office. But you're going to have one soon. I would love to have a constituency <laughs> office one day, Nick. <laughs> and I think, for what I saw on TV, I'll just put a plug out here. This is not a not a support for anyone, but what I saw on TV, I thought when I saw Christopher Luxon's office, I thought if they're only paying forty five thousand for that, someone's got a good deal, and it ain't him because it's a pretty flash office in a pretty flash area. Yeah, well, look, I know he takes his constituency duties really seriously and wanted to make sure that he had a space where constituents could come, uh, feel relaxed, be well looked after, and that's what his office provides. And it's all within the taxpayer caps, all within the parliamentary rules. Uh, He's a stickler for value for money. Yeah, and I'm sure that it is, and I just had to say it for our listeners, but it, it just makes absolute common sense. Nicola Willis and Ginny Anderson, Politics Wednesday, quick fire. <laughs> Yesterday I relented and I applied for an accredited work visa to bring five employees in. It cost me $740. Ginny, is that too expensive? I don't know. What are your business costs? What are your overheads? Is it going to be paying yourself? But that's your business analysis, I suppose. If you think you're going to get some good staff over the peak months of summer and a boomer kind of time for tourism, then I'm sure you'll benefit from that. Well, I tell you, I'm working for nothing this week. Nicola, should I have to pay it all? Uh, look, there are going to be costs taking in migrants, but the current system is too costly, too slow. Okay. In one sentence, what can be achieved by election campaigning overseas? Uh, I see Christopher Bishop's over in Sydney and he's going to go to Canada, America and, and everywhere. There's only 65,000 voters apparently in the four, five most places that for special votes and national don't do that well on them traditionally. So Nicola, what, what can be achieved by it? Every vote counts and every New Zealander who was locked out of their country and said that they would send a message to the government has a chance next year. And Ginny, I know that Labour are going to do it as well. Uh, Look, we have a huge Māori vote in Australia as well as Kiwis there and it's really important that they know they can vote and we've also changed uh, changed the law before election so those people who have been offshore for longer can still vote when otherwise they wouldn't have been able to. Nicola, Wow has been sold to an investment company still. I'm really disappointed. I'm saddened by it because I think the entrepreneurial flair uh, is gone. What are your thoughts? Uh, my thoughts are if it doesn't stay creative and innovative, then it won't survive as a concept and it will be up to the new investors to ensure it does. Yeah, Ginny, it's an investment company. They want investment. They want profits. Are you worried? Yeah, I'm a wee bit, you know, like um, my, my grandparents are from Nelson, so I sort of watched it grow from there and then come to Wellington and spread its wings. So I'm sort of quite proud and passionate about it. I just hope it retains its unique New Zealand identity yeah. through having this change of ownership. Can I quickly both ask you, do you think it belongs to Wellington or Nelson? Oh, I think we've, claimed it. we've claimed it now. Yeah, I'll uh-huh. take it. Yeah. Oh, okay. See, I'm 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 a traditionalist. I think it still belongs to Nelson. I'm saddened yeah. by it. Lydia Ko is number one in the world in golf again. It's a game played by millions. Why are we not giving her the same or even slightly the same attention we gave the Black Ferns a couple of weeks ago, Ginny? Fair call. I think she should. She's amazing. I, I just everything she says is so smart. She's an awesome sportswoman. We should be singing her praises more. Give her a key spot on your next um, on your next talkback show. Oh maybe. my god, I, I think she's amazing too. Nicola, your thoughts? She's an incredible talent, but also a role model in terms of sport. Is not just about athletic prowess. Prowess. It's about your force of mind. You know, she's just shown such discipline. 
you know, I saw her at the Olympics, and I don't watch a lot of golf, but I saw her and I watched her play around at the Olympics, and I had tears coming down my eyes because when the reporter were asking a question, she was just such a great representative for mm. New Zealand. You know, oh my God, she's such a proud Kiwi. I loved it. She, I loved cra- it. she cracked me up when they asked her why she was getting a sports message, and she just said, oh, I've got my period. It's not been a great day for me. And the journalist interviewing her was just gobsmacked. He didn't know what to say. He choked. You know, I think full credit for being a, like a leader for women in general. Yeah, yeah, she, the poor reporter choked, didn't know what to say. Oh, my God. Uh, Ginny, what was your reaction to police pursuits being back on the table? Uh, it's a really tricky one uh, to know because we know people die from pursuits, but at the same time, we need to make sure that people who are breaking the law are held accountable. So um, when you're seeing increased fleeing and you put just penalties up and increase, that, that doesn't have an impact. So that, that's a total operational call for police to weigh up if they can safely stop a car or whether they're actually contributing to a bigger mess by, by continuing to pursue. Nicola, your thoughts? Well, it was sort of an announcement that there will be an announcement. Uh, but my thoughts are the frontline police I speak to, they want to be able to pursue people. They feel like uh, they're missing some of the tools right now. I totally agree. I think it should be left up to them. Um, if they think it's safe and it's their life, it's their wives and children they want to get back to. If they think they can catch them, let them do it. That's my thoughts. Nicola Willis, Ginny Anderson, thank you for joining the show as uh, you do every week. I appreciate your time. Enjoyed having you on. Have a great week. Uh, catch you next Monday. Thanks, Nick. Thank you then, Nick. Have a great weekend. I'll, I'll do my very best. News Talk ZB Wellington Mornings.